Pace Line is a production of The Cycling Independent with support from our generous subscribers and from Shimano North America. Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and back with me this week is our co-host, John Emlin Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Buddy, it's been a couple weeks. Uh, how is fall there? Are you like a, a robot in heaven with, with colder weather? F- um. Well, fall has fallen, and it is now winter. I, I went oh. out this morning on my bicycle. And it was uh, 24 or 5 oh. with wind. Um, and I'll tell you that it was great. Um, you know, we've moved into a different, it's a, we, we've moved into a whole different thing now uh, where we're not, this is not the time of year to rip around on our trails because they're piled with leaves and there's <laughs> loose rock everywhere. And it's cold and we got thick gloves on. Uh, but the the morning light was fantastic regardless. Uh, and I, I guess we'll probably have some days in the 40s and 50s. Uh, but the mornings are still going to be pretty, you know, and I'm usually <laughs> out, usually out pretty early. Uh, but it's good. It's good. Everything is good. <laughs> And and how are things there? Is it fall? Uh, yeah, it is definitely fall here, which is to say our our nighttime lows are in the 40s, um, which I accept means that, you know, we have about two and a half seasons here. Um, I won't claim that it's real weather until it's actually, you know, raining cats, dogs and children. But, uh, you know, our, our highs are still usually getting up into the 60s during the day. I, oh, nice. I can't complain. I know better. Uh, <laughs> you ought not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Saturday, I rode out in Gianni land and uh, bumped into my friend Jeremiah, who I haven't been able to ride with for quite a while, entirely too long. Um, and we talked about me joining up with his posse uh, to some degree uh, going forward. <sighs> And buddy, I have some work ahead of me. Uh, at one point we were climbing up a small hill and I looked at those calves and I was like, oh, you know, and he's in his 40s. So, uh, yeah, I have some work ahead of me if I want to keep up with that dude. Well, I coined a new it's I don't know. Can you coin a word? Sure. Sure. I'm, I made an, I made a new word today. So I went out with a friend of mine and it was cold, as I mentioned, but like that was fine. We got over that pretty quickly, but I've been going real hard lately and I was just so tired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it was not a particularly epic ride, but I, I made hard work of it. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean? Yep. I was in like a full sweat and my legs, I kept asking my legs to do things and they kept saying, we told you no a minute ago. What makes you think asking again is going <laughs> to help? We've had this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get to the end of the ride and my my 
But he says, that was fun. And I say, what that was, was fun the less. <laughs> which, I don't which know what I it mean. means. I think I might know what it means, but I look forward to hearing. I love it just for its onomatopoeic viewy, uh, the, 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 was, uh, beauty. Yes, it was fun the less, which means that uh, it was... It was the dog's breakfast, but nonetheless, it was fun. <laughs> it was awful, and I really enjoyed it. That's, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. I mean, there's a beauty to, to you know, going hard enough that your body starts to go, yeah, no. I wasn't even going that hard. I wasn't even going that hard. I just, I'm just out of gas. Sometimes you run out of gas. That's okay. Yeah. I, it was, it was fun the less. Uh-huh. Fun the less. I, 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 you heard it here first folks. Uh, I'm going to, that's right. Yeah. Um, that's right up there with my coining of not some. Not some. Yeah. Not some. When something's not awesome. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, which is what my legs were uh, trying to get through that one light last night as night was falling. Um, I had lights enough to be seen by anybody who cared, but I was at an intersection. And I thought, you know, you just need to get through this as quickly as humanly possible. And in my mm. humanly possible state, turned out uh, I was only about halfway through the intersection when my legs started filling up with lactic acid and going, yeah. You know, you've already used this match. Yes. Uh, yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This morning on this morning's ride, uh, my friend, there's a way we can go home, which is flat. And there's a way we can go home that climbs the hill. And he said, well, we've come this far. Let's climb the hill. And then he took off. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I used my hill climbing legs like 20 minutes ago. I don't even know what we're doing now, but you know, and it's not like Thanksgiving where you can just go wash the bowl and reuse it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, alrighty. Well, let's jump into things. What are you pulling on this week? Well, uh, as you are aware, periodically, I like to talk about the business of bikes. Mm -hmm. Um, and my hope is that it helps listeners make better, more informed decisions about how and where they spend their bike dollars. Yeah. What I want to get into today is something that came from a conversation I had with a bike shop owner last week or the week before. I'm not good at time, but <laughs> so, so this person was telling me that they were considering a new service policy whereby they would only service bikes and products that they sell. Ooh, which is not to say that a potential customer had to have bought the bike or product from them. They could, obviously, but it's just that they're only going to work on things basically that they're fam really familiar with and that they know they have supplier support for. That's a little different thing than what I thought I heard you saying. Yeah, no, not not very, you know, uh, you can bring they sell Shimano things so you can bring Shimano things to them, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for example. But and, and I think this was one of the examples they gave. Um, they someone came in with a power meter that they were unfamiliar with mm -hmm. and it had a variety of syncing issues mm -hmm. uh, and they subsequently sank a lot of time into it. Uh, 
more time than they felt they could reasonably charge the person for. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got them thinking about other instances where they work maybe on a wheel set that they're, they don't know mm-hmm. that they can't do this, that, or the other thing with. And so what, and what, what we, we got to in this conversation was that, uh, bike shops everywhere. Um, well, this person's misgivings about the policy were based on an old industry idea that service is a gateway to retail sales. Mm-hmm. In other words, the people you welcome in for a tune-up or whatever service they need, those will be future bike sales customers. But this uh, person was saying that a little research indicates that's not really true. And it's even less true in this age we're in now of direct-to-consumer brands and online purchasing of all sorts of bike products, accessories, etc. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those people are, you, you're not earning their um, loyalty with a tune-up or with a wheel true or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Service is just service. And if you lose money on it, you don't make it back later. Yeah, entirely true, unfortunately. Yeah. So uh, what this person was saying is they're able to make a small but reasonable margin servicing bikes and products they know well, but they almost always lose money on everything else. A lot of today's bikes are complicated, idiosyncratic, or otherwise time-consuming to work on. And this is where so many... Suppliers, I think, fail to understand the amount of money and energy bike shops lose supporting their products. Mm. The suppliers have been reaping the benefit of that old notion that losing money on service pays for itself down the line. Mm -hmm. And if and or when shops start to tighten up this aspect of their operations, the suppliers are in for a big shock. (laughs) Uh, I suspect the big companies who are rushing to buy out and control the retail environment are already struggling to balance the books in their service departments because there is there is a dearth of really top-notch broadly experienced mechanics Mm -hmm. and a lot of products require research uh and time in order to service Mm mm-hmm uh, and if a lot of shops start saying, we're not going to work on that thing because we're unfamiliar with it, the first stop back is going to be the supplier. Yeah. Um, a great many suppliers have forsaken their retail partners in this way, clueless of this service burden, which is time and money. Uh, it's This is a thing that they've been carrying a long time, and that's not probably where the burden should lie. When it shifts back to the suppliers, they're going to be in trouble. So they're going to have to figure out who can build their bikes for them, and they're going to have to pay them adequately to do that. And the same goes for service. So when customers are told they can't get their brand X bike built or serviced at their local shop, you know, are the suppliers going to be ready? Right now, it's just a question of when independent bike shops wake up to the amount of time and money they're throwing at problems not of their own making and decide how they're going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh that's a that's a pretty fair observation. I mean, the thing that I, I see happening, and this is just one tiny little piece of the overall picture, is that there's going to be an ever-increasing burden on the assembly factories 
in Asia, or if you're doing your assembly here in the U.S., because that is kind of starting to become a thing. But there's going to be an increasing burden on those assembly factories to get those bikes, not just all the parts hung on them, but basically ride ready with just a few slight, you know, adjustments or, or you know, uh, installation. Turn the bar, add pedals, stick the seat post in. Uh, that's that's going to become just a, a bigger piece of what happens at the assembly factories. Um, because you know, the, they're going to need that in order to be able to, uh, fulfill those, uh, consumer direct sales. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And it's going to drive up the, pr the price of those bikes. Like right mm -hmm. now, those bikes, I don't want to pick out any particular consumer direct brand, but a lot of them are depending on the largesse of bike shops who say, oh yeah, I'll build that bike for you. And then they get into and they and most shops have a standard assembly fee, right? Mm -hmm. But when you get into internal routing and all the other whiz bangs that these brands offer now, it won't take long for shops to say, you know what? Our our standard fee does not apply to this bike. Uh, well, I could see tears in that. Uh, you know, any shop that's offering uh, assembly on bikes, you know, from the frame up, that needs to be tiered. You know, if you've got external routing, that's one price. If you've got internal routing, that's another. If you've got internal through the bar and the stem, um, just hand me your wallet. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think, um, and this is all part of shops learning to deal with the reality of the internet, right? Um, there was a lot of... Um, wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth a few years ago about, you know, what do we match pricing? Do we do this? Do we do that? How do we deal with uh, the move of so many high margin items to the internet? And this is, I think, the, the last piece of that puzzle. Like, where does the service burden live? Mm -hmm. does, it, mm -hmm. does it live with the supplier or does it get subsidized by the shop? Well, you know, the, the pattern in bicycle retailing for decades has always been that the retailer gets the short straw. Mm. Uh, you know, preseason orders, you know, retailers had to place these ginormous orders in order to reach their various dealer level that they wanted to be at. And so they yeah. had all this money tied up. And they didn't have any of the forecasting ability of a company like, you know, Specialized or even Santa Cruz. Um, and so, you know, they did, you know, they're ordering months and months out, not knowing, oh, is this going to be another El Nino winter where it's going to rain like crazy and nobody's going to walk through the door? I, I, I'm glad not to be in bicycle retailing just because I think it's such a thankless position to be in. It's full of such hard working and really genuinely lovely people, although it's also got some people who are really burnt out because they've been <laughs> treated poorly for so long. Yep. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I mean, uh, listeners will know I'm a big supporter of bike shops. Um, that may come down to the simple fact that I have a lot of friends that own them. Um, I do think that manufacturers have begrudgingly well i wouldn't even say begrudgingly 
manufacturers have slowly but surely eroded retail margins uh, to the point now where it's really hard to make ends meet. Uh, given all the pressures, you have to be a pretty masterful business person in a lot of different ways to operate a successful bike shop. And I'm just, uh, the thing that sticks out for me in all of it is, you know, because you, there's a certain sense of you, the future is coming. You can't resist the future. Right. Uh, and there are larger forces at play than the individual bike shop, independent bike shop owner and me, for example, But I always revert to this idea that whether you use a bike shop regularly or not, you want one in your town. Totes. Everybody wants one in their town. Yeah. And the simple fact is that if we want them, if we want them near at hand, either because we we want them to be there when we need them or we want them to be there when our neighbors, our less knowledgeable neighbors need them. Mm hmm. We have to support them. We have to find the ways we have to make what I think are really small sacrifices uh, to to support them. They're not charities, right? They're going to make money. They're going to provide value for dollars. Mm -hmm. Will you get your thing two days later than you would have if you ordered it directly online? Yeah. Will you save the shipping by buying it from the store? Yeah. You know, there's there's all of these little ticky tacky things, but it, ultimately it's about what we want our communities to look like, uh, what those businesses should be, whether there should be bikes readily available for everyone or not. Um, and I just don't think that the consumer direct model honors the uh, culture and complexity of cycling. This is true. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. You know, the the problem isn't going to get much better anytime soon, given the delta that we're seeing between what you can pay online and what you often have to pay in the shop, even after you figure in shipping. Um, I've faced some situations recently where it's like, well, it's half as much online, you know, and because I've got history with this you know, operation, I get free shipping. I got two boys to feed and sure. But both of their appetites have grown by at least 50, (laughs) 50 to a hundred percent, depending on which individual we're talking about in the last, you know, 18 months. Um, yeah. Holy cow. Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely people have to make hard decisions. I'm not, I don't want to under, I don't want to under, acknowledge or i don't want to blow right past the fact that people are on real budgets and cycling uh riding bikes can be expensive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah uh my eldest philip uh i'm right at the precipice of coaxing him back into nika for a second season last year we had a real flame out uh, with him and, you know, being on his bike prior to nine o'clock in the morning, uh, the combination of, of cold and, you know, adolescent brain wanting to sleep until 11 o'clock. It, it didn't, that season didn't last long. Uh, Mm. and I'm, I'm sort of at the precipice where I think I'm going to be able to make a deal with him. Uh, I just, for me with him, I just want him, he's got talent. 
he needs to learn what it means to work at something. And this is a challenge, uh, a chance to combine, you know, some fun and some talent with some hard work so that he can see what those gains can be like. Mm. Cycling taught me so much. And he and I are so much alike in so many ways, except he's really extroverted. Um, I, you know, it's like, I want him to develop the skill set. I want him to be, I want to walk him through that experience in a way no one could explain, uh, or guide me through when I was at that age. Um, mm. You know, we nobody understood my brain um, and I get what's going on in his. And I feel like if I can just get him out there and start getting some some, you know, quote unquote wins under his belt. And I'm not talking bike races, um, but I need to do some stuff to his bike and it won't be cheap. Well, there are some sacrifices I think are always worth making. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> not even going to argue. Yeah. 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 There's yes. A hundred percent. Alrighty. Uh, well, why don't we take a little break and we'll be back in just a moment. We are brought to you in part by Shimano North America and their new GRX 12 speed mechanical group set. Shimano is the originator of gravel-specific components, and the new GRX Mechanical is the next step in their evolution. Rooted in simplicity, reliability, and adventure, the new GRX lineup offers three unique 12-speed mechanical drivetrain options, along with unrivaled ergonomics without an over-the-top price. Available in two different one by chainring options and one two by chainring option, the new GRX 12 speed mechanical series delivers the freedom to choose how and where to ride. Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. What have you got for us this week? So I've received a few questions of late regarding dropper posts and gravel bikes. Like, mm. Do they belong? Why mm -hmm. aren't they more common? What do I need to know before purchasing and installing one? And finally, uh, what are the downsides? Okay, so I'm going to get the easy one out of the way. Do dropper posts belong on gravel bikes? Maybe. Oh, I like how definitive <laughs> you are there. <laughs> Let's hear more. Well, that's probably not the easiest answer. But really, it's not all that complicated. It comes down to this. Are you descending steep hills? For anyone who is a mountain biker who has been down something and wished they had a dropper, well, you've got your answer. Uh, in most of the country, people are unlikely to encounter anything steep enough to make one all that necessary. Here in coastal Northern California, they are super handy. Hmm. Um, okay, why aren't they more common? Well, they drive up the price of a given bike. Uh, so there's that. Manufacturers want to hit that price point and they want to, as we've just discussed, eke some profit out of it. Um, uh, you know, and then there's the fact that plus, you know, for most frames, they would require a slight change in frame design to give the dropper post housing a place to exit the frame near the head tube. So 
adding one isn't like adding a seat bag. Uh, also, most gravel bikes feature a seat tube with an inner diameter of 27.2 millimeters, uh, while the great majority of dropper posts have a much larger diameter, like, say, 30.6 or 31.6. Uh, so there aren't lots of them available and consumers haven't really been crying out for them um, now that Shimano has come out with one in 27.2 you know, the entire game is different. Um, but there's also been a remarkable struggle to figure out the best design and location for the lever. Mm. Um, I've encountered a few that placed the lever on the bar top. And I'm just going to go on record and saying that's no bueno. No, no bueno. What I've experienced is that I'll begin a descent in the drops and not immediately drop the saddle um, because I was still pedaling, you know, and it wasn't all that steep. But then the descent would get steeper still, steep enough that I'd want to drop the saddle. But by that time, I'm screaming downhill and taking one hand out of the drop was not something I really wanted to do. Also no bueno. Yeah. And so I'd have to hit the brakes, slow down enough to make sure the bike is fully under control, not going, you know, 1.5 Mach, drop the saddle and then re-accelerate, you know? What's the point? (laughs) Right? At that point, what's the point? Yeah, I'll just get off and walk home. Um, uh, Shimano, Crank Brothers, and at least one other company, I can't recall who, have come up with a design that can be clamped just below the control lever body. And it has a long lever that can be pulled up while in the hoods, as well as a trigger that can be depressed with the thumb while in the drops. Um, that has been a game changer. Um, And I'll say also that the Shimano lever, um, the thumb buttony portion is pretty, uh, it's pretty flat. It's parallel to the ground. Whereas the Crank Brothers one cocks it down at like 45 degrees. The Crank Brothers one, which I believe they charge $50 for, gadzooks, is entirely easier to use, I will say. Mm. Um... The real issue someone might want to consider before adding a dropper post, though, uh, and no, it's not the weight, uh, though a dropper post with cable and and lever will weigh three or four times what a lightweight seat post may weigh. It's the way your arms are turned. On a mountain bike, your hands are wide apart and your arms are oriented in a way that allows you to support your upper body weight effectively. Um... You know, you're you're just a little wider than you would doing uh, doing a push up, um, which goes to my friend Rick's contention that mountain bike bars are too wide. Your, your hands should be spread more like push up distance apart. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I. I see both arguments. Um, leverage is a good thing. That Archimedes dude was on to something, you know, leave her long enough, move the world. Uh, sure. What I found when I did a big point to point ride up in the mountains in Mendocino County, uh, 18 months ago, it's been a little while. Um, but it was the first time I did a really, really big gravel ride with a dropper. Um, 
I ended up using my legs to support my weight to a much greater degree than I do when I'm on a mountain bike ride. Nothing wrong with that, okay? I'm not complaining. But it did increase my fatigue on what was already a very long and hard day. The next day, I was toast. My quads were torched. I'd been planning to ride back to my start, but my legs were actually sore. Uh, And it was more from the dropper post than from the riding because they were sore in kind of odd places. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my quads were just sore in a way they they never are like post event or something. Um, So people have to think about, well, this is going to come with a new kind of fatigue, a different kind of fatigue. Um, There's no reason not to do it. But, you know, consider yourself warned. Um, I suggest starting with some shorter rides to build uh, that different kind of strength to some degree and just be ready for it. I suggest just putting some squats in your daily routine. You'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. uh, But, but uh, I don't, I'm not into dropper posts on gravel bikes. My, mm -hmm. my personal self. And, and, And what is your... Uh, what is your reasoning on that? Well, look, the, um, if bike categories are like uh, the Olympic rings, uh, if you th- imagine the Olympic rings are a Venn diagram and each ring is a category of bicycle, right? So there's overlap, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, some of that is tire size, like, oh, a really big gravel tire and a really skinny mountain tires are, you know, pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all of these sort of things. And I think that the industry is like, oh, we're, we can move the gravel bike a little closer to the mountain bike and we can move the road bike a little closer. To, you know, it's all this stuff. And I, mm-hmm. for me, if you're riding stuff where you feel a dropper post is necessary, you should just be on a mountain bike. It's fine. <laughs> It's fine. It's just, just ride a mountain bike. <laughs> um, You're cute. Not all the stuff needs to go on all the stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you know, what you're saying sounds perfectly reasonable. Absolutely reasonable. Uh, one of the grasshoppers, uh, Super Skags, is if you do the long version, it's like 96 miles. And it is far and away the hardest thing I've ever done that was less than 100 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get a little dirt here and there, not a lot. But then at like mile 86, uh, or maybe it's mile 84, because you go like two miles back on the road to get to the finish. You've got 10 miles of single track at Lake Sonoma. And Lake Sonoma... Um, <sighs> It, it it's it's flat um like the sky is black it, it's right. just it, it's it's constantly up and down and not only is it constantly up and down it's constantly up at up and down at like 15 to 18 percent right but your use case for launching this into a category of bikes can't be one ride no no there are there are Plenty of others. And here's here's the real thing about the dropper post that, you know, that one day in the mountains uh, in Mendocino taught me uh, that did absolutely surprise me. I found that 
you know, after having done a couple of really steep descents with the dropper down, uh, where I felt like I absolutely needed it, it got to the point that every time I started going downhill, I mean, more than like 5%, I just dropped the saddle because I realized, oh, I feel better. I mean, the, the, the soreness is only an issue if you're going to be out of the saddle some. If you're sitting in the saddle and you drop the saddle down, you've lowered your center of gravity. And that stuff always feels better. It <laughs> always feels better. Sure. So I, um, I get that you need something really steep to justify it. Uh, and I get where you're coming from. Uh, to try to do super skags on a hard tail with say 1.75 uh semi knobby tires no just no uh, i i buy it i get that i i think um but i still think that it's a one percent solution right it's like 99 percent of your gravel rides just don't look that way you know there's plenty of people out there who are quote unquote under biking they're riding their gravel bike on gnarly single track okay you know that's a that's a particular sort of appeal for a particular sort of rider. I get what you sh- what you're saying there. Yeah, I just don't think any of these cases justifies its exi- like okay, it's a customization, but is it a category thing like oh, gravel bikes could or should have them uh either by default or as as a standard upgrade? No, I don't think so. I I fully get that there's a bunch of gnarly people out there doing gnarly <laughs> stuff who agree with me, but I, I don't know. I mean, if I were a product manager, I wouldn't start putting droppers on all my gravel bikes. But what I would do is I would make sure that the little frame insert for the cable guide coming out on the left side of, you know, the, the down tube there. I'd make sure that that little thing that fits in there could be swapped out with another that would allow two housings to exit as opposed to just one. Um, I'd make it easier to add one. Yeah, it's technically non-trivial as trivial as well, right? You need a long enough seat tube to accommodate the dropper uh, and one that doesn't jeopardize the seat tube bottle mounts. Mm hmm. Um, so it's non-trivial. I think, I think, and this is how things work in the bike industry, right? Like all the product managers are trying to hit a price point for their gravel bike. Mm -hmm. So they're not putting the dropper on because it's an unnecessary thing and it it can be done aftermarket. Mm -hmm. But then one clever product manager is like, well, I'm going to differentiate my bike by having it come standard with a dropper post. And everyone's going to go, oh my God, there's a gravel bike with a dropper post. Like, this is amazing. (laughs) And then people get all spun up about it. Uh, we have this, you know, I don't even know if the, it sort of like precedes the debate, like whether that's even a good idea. So now there's one on the market and then some people are going to say that it's super cool. Uh, I've said I, where I, I live on this, <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, in general, I think most people won't ever need it. I mean, if you're doing events like Unbound, uh, totally not necessary. Um, yeah. you know, just, just not remotely necessary. And you know, the, the having less weight up there does feel nice when you're out of the saddle. Um, but I've found that from my riding around here, um, 
it's, you know, I'm always encountering something. If I'm going down, it's going to get steep sooner or later, I guess is, is what my answer is. And I've found that I enjoy being able to drop that saddle down with my hands in the drops. Um, it's also not bad for my neck, but that's a personal thing. But it, it's, it's awfully handy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to yuck your yum anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely in favor of dropper posts on gravel bikes for you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's, it's something to consider. Um, sure. Yeah. All righty. Well, let's move on to paceline picks. Um, yours is obviously not about a dropper post for a gravel bike. It's not a gravel dropper. No, this okay. week I'm actually picking the humble toothbrush. <laughs> In fact, I'm not picking a new toothbrush. I'm picking your old toothbrush, the one you probably ought to replace because it's starting to look a little sad. Mm-hmm. Those bristles are supposed to go are supposed to stick up straight. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah, they're not supposed to look like falling fireworks. If you have an electric toothbrush, this doesn't apply to you, but you might want to consider going back to the manual version, if only for the sake of your bike's drivetrain. I Mm. never throw out a toothbrush. They get rinsed thoroughly and stowed in my tool chest for periodic drivetrain cleaning. Man, I love taking a toothbrush to a grimy chain and cassette. (laughs) I make a little solution of dish soap and hot water, and I go to town and... Uh, the amount of uh, grease and gunk you get out of there uh, with a little friction, a little bristly friction is just, it's really satisfying. You can buy purpose-made brushes for this purpose, of course, uh, mm-hmm. from Pedro's and Park and I don't mm-hmm. know who else. But they certainly make ones that will fit between the the uh, uh, between the, the rings on your cassette. Yep. What's that? The inner plates of the chain. Yeah. 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 All of that stuff. You can buy those. Um, some of them are arguably better shaped than a toothbrush, but in my experience, none of them has a very long shelf life. Even when I clean them, they absorb more and more grease until they're more or less unusable. A toothbrush I've already cleaned my teeth with for a couple months. I don't mind greasing that up and then eventually disposing of it. It's basically free at that point. Uh, we will, have no link to use toothbrushes in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My pick yeah. is free. My pick is free and it, it requires no clicking. <laughs> um, I, I always keep uh, a regular toothbrush in my travel bag. Um, I, I don't usually travel with my electric toothbrush so i Mm. do even though i'm an electric toothbrush user i do end up with used toothbrushes after a while thanks to my travels i mean i suppose technically you could take your electric toothbrush to your chain i haven't done it i i'd imagine it's effective uh but probably not great for the toothbrush you would get results yeah the value you know, the utility of those results is up for some debate, but yeah, you would yeah, get yeah. a result. You would get a result. Yeah. Maybe just stick with your manual, your old manual toothbrush. Yeah. Uh, so what do you got? Mine's, mine's a little offbeat as well. Um, mine is not a particular product. Uh, 
This is about to get weirdly personal. Uh, there are companies that espouse particular philosophies, ethoses uh, that impress me when they exhibit regard for the social contract. You know, that there's more to what they do than just making a buck. For sure. It's the sort of thing that helps renew my faith in humanity, which gets dashed on a nearly daily basis. Right. So how's that for a product review? Um, (laughs) My pick this week is for Pearl Izumi and their Pedal to Zero initiative. Pedal to Zero is mostly just a bunch of math, but it's math that's not actually easy to do. So what it is, is the folks at Pearl Izumi uh, calculated how much you have to ride to offset the carbon emissions generated in the production of that piece of gear. Pearl stuff lasts like few other brands I know. Uh, So this sort of calculation may seem silly because for most of their pieces, you'll offset the carbon emissions in the first hour or two you ride with it. And then you're going to own it for another 10 years. So recouping that was never in question, right? Um, What's the point? Ride once, you've done your job. But here's the thing. I think we all need to be increasingly aware of what carbon emissions result from our purchases. Uh, The real value of Pearl Izumi's Pedal to Zero program isn't showing how quickly someone offsets the carbon resulting from their products. It's helping us to begin to see what every purchase results in emissions, just raising basic awareness. You know, and if that's not a good enough reason to buy Pearl Azumi gear, I'll remind everyone of this. They are the only maker of cycling apparel on the planet that offers five different styles of fit. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff for all bodies. Yeah. How's, how about that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I, after writing that up, I figured I should look into it a little more, and I contacted uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Andrew, who used to be their marketing manager, and I, I thought maybe he was still their marketing manager. No, he's, he's gone to work for a company that built wind farms. Um, (laughs) so he's doing real good in the world. Um, but he had been, uh, he had been at the forefront of their efforts to promote, you know, their, um, uh, the life cycle of their products and, um, how they were sourcing responsibly, um, you know, where they were getting their wool from all these different things. Yeah. Uh, pedal to zero was entirely his idea, but at least they've kept doing it. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I think, you know, it's like you go to um, a fast food restaurant and they now, I think they are required by law to tell you how many calories mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. each item contains. I like mm-hmm. this. I like this informed uh, consumer thing. And I think focusing on, you know, carbon offset is is pretty interesting. I'm sure it's inexact and I'm sure people will argue and argue and argue about it. I don't even care. Yeah, I I, again, I, I see the value in terms of getting us to think about carbon emissions more. Now, you know, everything we do in this world, uh, is going to have some sort of cost to the environment. Um, and there are enough of us crawling around this planet that we need to take better care of it. Amen. Yeah. Uh, well then that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Uh, Boy, yeah. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything we talked about today in the comments on The Cycling Independent. And while you're there, hey, would you consider subscribing? Um, we do have three, five, and $10 monthly options, as well as the tip jar for anyone who wants to be one and done. Your dollars go directly into this podcast, as well as our other podcast, Revolting with John and Stevel, and our freelance contributors, of which we have a few, and they are awesome. They are awesome. They are awesome. And we like to keep them paid. I'd also like to just thank uh, the few folks who have been to the store recently and bought TCI t-shirts. Uh, and I will remind you as we come towards the various holidays here that we do have t-shirts available in the TCI store. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Please. And thank you. We are grateful for that. As we say, we need your help to keep doing what we do. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thank you for listening to The Pace Line. <laughs>